Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS, that's with the number four, or Communities for Just Schools. Again, that's with the number four. On this week's episode of Schoolhouse, this is going to be a great show today, we're talking about masculinity, the ways in which gender norms or societal expectations of men can be harmful to black men and boys. With me today are Dr. Micah Gilmer, a senior partner with Frontline Solutions and part-time professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Ricky Wilchins, the executive director of True Child. We're going to talk about the recent report, Addressing Masculine Norms to Improve Life Outcomes for Young Black Men, Why We Still Can't Wait, released by Frontline Solutions and True Child. Welcome, Micah and Ricky. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Allison. So, Ricky, before we jump into the report, will you just define for us what are gender norms? That's a great question. I think that there's a generous an overloaded term in the English language, and people often confuse gender norms, gender identity, gender mainstreaming, and so forth. But, you know, gender norms are these scripts and expectations uh, that we all kind of learn, particularly uh, in those adolescent years, for how to be a boy or a girl, how to do masculinity or femininity. So in terms of You know, traditional masculinity, that's usually understood as some amalgam of strength, aggression, sexual prowess, emotional toughness, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Traditional femininity is usually, you flip that over, is usually understood as what I call the three Ds of being deferential, desirable, and dependent. So, Micah, why is it important? We saw last year the launch of My Brother's Keeper. There's been a lot of focus on black men, uh, especially as they come into contact with police and policing structures that are abusive and that are killing them even in the streets. And so, you know, we see conversations happening about black men and boys, but this report is really bringing together that conversation with an understanding of gender normativity and some of its detrimental impacts. Why is that important to do? I think it's critically important because of the idea of intersectionality, right? And that's the idea that me as a black man, for instance, I experienced a world as both black and as a man. And so you can't sort of look at one side of my identity or one piece of my identity without looking at the whole picture of who I am. And so I think we think of it similar to what we think about the conversation around racial equity, right? So now as a community of folks that care about improving communities, we're beginning to have a more honest and open conversation. We're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. We're beginning to understand that unless you look at racialized systems of oppression, racism, structural racism, as an underpinning thing that's impacting the ability of communities to have access to opportunity, mm-hmm. you're not going to get anywhere in terms of that conversation. And we hope we haven't done yet. And what we're um, sort of trying to push for is having a similar conversation about gender and about gender-based systems of oppression and about the fact that your gender identity has a tremendous impact upon um, how you see the world and also how the world sees you. 
I just want to hop in and, and add to that if I can, too, because sure, I think it's important that um, when people hear the word gender or gender identity, often they assume the conversation is about transgender or gay kids. And I think what Mike is trying to say is even for those kids who are gender conforming, who do conform to normal ideas of masculinity and boyhood, they too face markedly lower life outcomes. And you can't ameliorate that entirely unless you start thinking about race, class, and gender. That's the intersectional model, is that these things come together, not in separate silos. This has given, I think, an important frame for arguments and conversations that have been ongoing, certainly in education. So, you know, I'll tell you that a light bulb went off for me in reading this report because I talk a lot about some of the ridiculous punishments that black and brown children face for things in school, like school uniform violations, showing up late for school or for class, talking back to a teacher, or the amorphous and omnipresent disrespect, insubordination, or defiance. You know, black boys in schools are punished often because their teachers are afraid of them, and black girls are punished often because they're not comporting with a a cultural idea of what people think white women are and should be. But the frame I had been missing all along in that line of argument was gender normativity. You know, Ricky, the report about black girls and gender norms came out first. Will you just talk about some of the findings in that report, gender norms, a key to improving health and wellness among black women and girls? Yeah, the background for that paper actually was some work we had done with the Heinz Endowments to try to improve health outcomes. Unfortunately, education wasn't part of their purview, so we didn't get into that as much. But mm-hmm. The key finding, I think, is that I should say I'm not speaking as a person of color, but the finding from that report, which was done with Dr. Seattle Wallace of St. John's University, is that black adolescent girls and young women face specific barriers related to both their race and gender, which have immense effects on their health, achievement, uh, and life outcomes. And this is can be especially the case for uh, black girls in low-income communities who have added challenges associated with poverty. The other finding that came out of that, and we could talk about that in more depth if you want around health, but the other finding that is that black girls are often ignored in the literature. We're just starting to study girls in anything like the depth that we study boys uh, just generally. But although we found that black girls were represented in almost every study, almost no studies pulled them out specifically or did studies specifically on them. So a lot of times we had to extrapolate what was there. So they are profoundly understudied when it comes to feminine norms, even Mm -hmm. though there are lots of connections to things like, you know, teen pregnancy, uh, infant mortality, HIV and condom use, and certainly uh, intimate relationships. Micah, this report about black boys and gender norms is powerful. And one of the pieces of this report, you call masculinity a gateway belief system. What does that mean, and what are some of the life impacts of gender normativity for black men and boys? We really see masculinity, and and the research points to this as a gateway in the sense that it becomes a pathway to a variety of different belief systems, many of which have really negative impact on on the life outcomes of young men, and also um, in the case of, you know, domestic violence and uh, partner violence, in the case of male-on-male and homophobic violence it really has a negative impact also on folks around them, right? So that believing that you need to be tough, believing that you need not show emotion, believing that sexual conquest is a part of your identity is associated with uh, higher rates of HIV 
and other STIs. It's um, associated with uh, higher levels of violence. It's also associated with them experiencing more violence. It's also associated with more contact with the police department or more contact with the, with the justice system. So that central belief becomes a gateway or a pathway to a lot of different bad things for our young people. The irony of this is that unlike many other sort of negative behaviors or things that have are associated with, with poor life outcomes, our schools in many cases actually are enforcing these negative codes of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So the same place that is purporting to, you know, help young people get access to opportunity is also by enforcing these gender codes, helping young men and boys actually head down a path of hypermasculinity that's ultimately going to impact their ability to be able to be successful. So even as schools are policing masculinity in black men and boys, they also are perpetuating hypermasculinity in them. Yeah, schools are asking young men to walk a really narrow road. I'll, I'll give you an example. We did some work helping to revise the discipline code in a pretty low-income, majority African-American school district. And in that school district discipline code, it says that young boys and young men are not are not allowed to wear earrings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is like, one, it's a violation of federal law because it's, it's a gender-biased piece of the discipline code, right? So mm-hmm. that's, it's sort of crazy that it can even be in there. But what they're doing is, is two things. One, there is this kind of discourse around young men wearing jewelry that is like this transgressive, like youth culture thing that's associated with being a thug, but it's also associated with femininity, right? And mm-hmm. so there's a way in which there's both a policing of young men are not allowed to do things that are gender transgressive. Also, the discipline code, they're not allowed to wear skirts, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. But they're also not allowed to do things that are too masculine or too hyper-masculine. Or too, so there's like this very narrow line that we're asking them to walk, to be tough, but to back down when they get into a police encounter, right? To be aggressive, but not talk back to their teacher. To be very much sort of a masculine norm, but but not to step outside of those bounds. And, and that's the sort of line that we're asking young people to walk that's that's actually pretty impossible to be able to execute. I just wanted to echo that. I think that when we looked at the literature on this, what you see is these two two kind of great systems and, and blind collision, a gender culture that demands adolescent boys master public displays of masculinity that include things like, you know, defying adult authority figures, being boisterous, you know, suffering punishment silently, et cetera, and a school disciplinary regime that's inclined to view precisely those displays as evidence of defiant behavior, as oppositional, and as threatening, and markers of eventual failure. And I think we end up placing kids, especially adolescent kids who are still figuring out how to do manhood, we end up placing this tremendous burden on them, particularly in zero-tolerance systems, mm-hmm. right when they have very little margin for error in navigating these twin shoals, if you will, of masculinity on one hand and school disciplinary regimes on the other. This report is about black men and boys. How is gender normativity culture-specific? So how are black men and boys doing and viewing masculinity different than, say, Latino or Native men? And how is society viewing black masculinity differently than other forms? What I'll say first is that the issue of sort of hyper-masculinity or toxic masculinity or whatever term you want to use, it's an American problem, right? So it's not just about hip-hop music or about, you know, aspects of sort of urban or black or Latino youth culture. It is about this society, right? It's about John Wayne, you know, spanking women on <laughs> on, on screen and, yeah. and Westerns and 
all these sort of crazy, you know, the sort of valorization and tolerance of domestic violence in this country, right? But what happens is that the difference is that the way that those behaviors are received and the way that those young men are perceived is heavily coded by race. And so that's not to say that there aren't also cultural influencers and factors like the things that are that happen in music, the things that are part of, you know, machismo or other sort of cultural norms that young people experience yeah. and have access to, that they're also part of the problem. But the core problem is this American problem about our belief system that like this sort of frontier American masculinity is built around toughness and lack of feeling and lack of caring, et cetera. Micah, you talked earlier about intersectionality, and one of the key intersections that you really explore in the report is class, so socioeconomic status and gender norms. And I just want to read an excerpt from the report where you're talking about that intersection. It says, in under-resourced communities, codes for masculinity and femininity are apt to be especially narrow. Penalties for transgressing them particularly harsh and opportunities for constructively displaying public manhood or womanhood few. This means the impact of harmful, rigid masculine norms on young black men in these communities can be magnified. It is not that young black men in affluent suburban communities do not experience similar problems with codes of manhood. Studies show they do. Rather, it is that in higher-income neighborhoods, the impacts are buffered by living in an environment where young men enjoy more personal resources and social capital and are exacerbated in impoverished environments where they lack them. So, Ricky, how exactly does socioeconomic status affect gender expectations? In a lot of ways, I think that you kind of indicated a little bit from that report. Young men in low-income environments, first of all, often, not always, uh, but often face much stricter requirements for displaying masculinity and harsher punishments. And as, as Mike indicated, this isn't just young black men. This is, you know, suburban white boys uh, who are low-income in, in Lubbock, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, face many of the same challenges if they are in low-income communities. I think that also, you know, the traditional status displays, um, which are often how young men, you know, display manhood and, and create dominance hierarchies, things like, you know, flashing the the latest iPad or a fully loaded, you know, you know, Mustang, Shelby Cobra or whatever it is, you know, these are things that you're not as likely to be able to do uh, in low income communities. One of the folks we used to work with who was the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback used to say, you know, young men uh, in low income communities really have three ways to show masculinity. They can try to show money, they can get girls, or they can throw the ball. I think that's true. You have fewer ways to do it. And also you're less as you're less buffered, as the report said, in the effects. I mean, let's face it, the, the kids who get evicted from school are much less likely to be evicted from school if they're, you know, suburban kids, you know, parents or doctors and lawyers, particularly if they're uh, if they're white. I mean, we, those kids are seen differently by school administrators. You know, there is an important distinction here, and I think, you know, we've touched on it a bit in this conversation so when we talk about gender norms, we're, we're talking about it really as a twofold issue. So for black men and boys internally, within themselves and within their communities, but then we're also talking about it systemically, structurally, the ways in which the systems and structures and society views them and interacts with them, black men and boys. In education, that means that teachers and educators actually view black men and boys in a certain way. 
And so I wonder, Micah, if you would just talk about that. And there's, there's another quick quote from the report that says, even urban masculine fashion plays a role. A study perceptively titled Tuck in That Shirt documented how hallway displays of contemporary urban manhood among young black men, lowered in baggy pants, untucked shirts, had a profound impact on teachers. Educators, white and black, immediately perceived the boys as oppositional and threatening, responding with more focus on bodily discipline, regulation, and punishment. Will you say a bit more about that, Micah? Ricky pointed to some of the clash between displays of sort of manhood in in these communities and then the expectations of the larger expectations of our society. And I think school dress is, is one of the, the places where this is most stark, right? That there are styles or fashions of dress that are associated with sort of lifestyle and different sets of music, different sets of culture, things like, you know, and, and kids aren't wearing the, the baggy jeans as much as they used to, but they're still sort of sagging, right? And so sagging is seen as this practice that is like transgressive, right? That it's not up to the sort of like middle class white standard, right? In terms of dressing, you know, there's been like rumors circulated around how sagging actually is tied to like homosexuality as a way of like sort of like pushing back against it as a, as a practice to like delegitimizing it to it because like there's just like these rumors which are mostly unfounded about like how this practice came out of like homosexual culture or whatever. Like there's all these different ways that which like that sort of those sort of masculinity bounds are policed by folks in school. But what what we see across the board is that types of transgressive behavior that are most associated with black culture and to some extent with Latino culture uh, as well, that those types of behaviors are viewed much more harshly than other kinds of transgressive behaviors, right? So if there is, you know, if somebody has sort of baggy pants versus dressing in, you know, sort of like a more like punk rock style or more goth style, they're both transgressive behaviors, but one of them is viewed much more harshly than the other. The report, you go into respectability politics and how that plays a role. That's what you're describing there, Micah. Will you talk about respectability and the respectability norms that then compound on gender norms? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that this is especially true in some cases for Black educators, right? That the way that folks have made it through the system, right? They made it through this this sort of racist um, system that we have here in the United States where your opportunity is in many ways dictated by the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. The way folks have navigated by that is by taking on aspects of respectable culture. And so that's, you know, dressing a certain way, that's keeping your shirt tucked in, that's saying yes, sir, and no, sir. And so a lot of our educators believe rightly or wrongly that those sorts of behaviors are the pathway forward to success. And study after study has shown that that actually black educators in many cases are, are even harder on students of color, but because they know that the larger environment societally is an environment where they're going to have to sort of be, you know, the old adage, you have to be twice as good to get ahead, right, mm-hmm. or to get, to get half as far, right? And so this idea that educators many many times sort of unwittingly become complicit in the system by being harder on kids of color. Uh, Chris Emden had a great article uh, recently where he talked about why black men quit teaching, and there's this idea that the schoolhouse puts this pressure on black men educators to be the disciplinarian, be the tough love person, be the all, all these extra sorts of things um, to kids in their classroom. And so 
these these educators, you know, you know, wittingly or unwittingly, sometimes become the enforcers of these very rigid codes on the young people that are trying very hard to help. We've been hearing a lot lately about resilience and grit and how one of the the positives, if you will, for young people who cope with toxic stress, who live in stressful environments, that many of them develop this grit and resilience and that they're you know, there are now classes to teach resilience and grit and and I think dangerously there are now tests to test young people and their resilience and grit. What you all describe as John Henryism it sounds a lot to me like that, like resilience and grit. But in the long term, you found that John Henryism is not necessarily as beneficial as it is in the short term. First of all, what is John Henryism and what are the short term manifestations of that and the long term? John Henryism is a term that describes basically the person's response to trying to cope with constant stress. And um, when you try to cope with the uncopable, if you will, it can lead to depression, compromised immune system, what's called a weathering effect of your body, or you become much more vulnerable to chronic health problems like hypertension, diabetes, uh, heart disease, and so forth. And the idea is that we often place young black men in particular in lifelong situations where the cards are stacked against them and there isn't a way forward where they can surmount all the, the challenges they face. And if we encourage them to always over-try, they may end up compromising their bodies. And so, again, this is a pushing back on the idea of respectability politics, that you know, there's always a way forward. And if you just adopt you know, the kind of Norman Rockwell middle-class morality of you know, always trying, always being the best, you, know, you can get ahead. Sometimes you can, but sometimes, especially if you're in a low-income community and you're a young man of color and you're working with where there's structural impediments, that's not going to work. And you have to recognize that and, and step back from it a little bit. It's also valuable to say here that I think a lot of the folks that are in these schools and are doing this work that come from communities of color have had to have so much grit and resilience and John Henryism sort of in their own identity to be able to survive and to make it through the system, that there's a lot of healing that needs to happen with our educators and administrators and school resource officers and other folks that are part of that system to really get some space to unpack and decompress from this stuff. We did a program with high school football coaches where we gave them some of that space to think about their own journey as men and to think about sort of how they sort of came to be who they are. And on the surface, these are super hyper-masculine. These are folks that are teaching, you know, young men and boys how to play an incredibly, you know, violent sport. But when you give them some space to unpack their own journey, they say things like, I love my coach that, that I grew up with, but I don't want to be the same kind of coach he is. But mm-hmm. I get the fact that if I am, you know, calling people homophobic names on the practice field, that I'm creating an unsafe space for all of the young men and the, and the boys in my program, whether they identify as gay or straight or masculine or gender nonconforming or whatever. And so all of this say is I think there's this, this real process of healing that has to happen in, in confrontation with these things that can produce some tangible results for the folks that are sort of caught in the middle of the storm. Micah, are there positives to some of the social expectations of black men and boys, especially the expectations coming from their own communities? One of the challenges is that even as we talk about in the paper about some of the negative life outcomes that are associated with folks having, you know, a sort of hyper-masculine identity or identifying strongly with the extremes of masculinity, you know, having a strong sort of racial and gender identity is also really important and key 
to being able to have a foundation to have success. And so I think that the idea is, as we work with um, our young people, to really sort of take some of the best of the things that are associated with both sort of their racial identities and with their gender identities and be able to sort of jettison some of the negative messages that they get, right? So, for instance, when we talk about things like toughness or resilience, that toughness doesn't mean you're not afraid, that you don't cry. Toughness doesn't mean that you're not sort of able to confront the sort of whole humanity of who you are as a human being. Quite the contrary. What we really want is for our young people to be able to be honest about the things that are challenging them and when they are in, are in over their heads or they need help to seek help and to seek sort of those things to, to support them, but also to know that they can do that work and still continue to, to move forward and, and to push on and, and to be able to be successful. Ricky, you know, I've heard a lot about a gender continuum or gender spectrum. Um, and, you know, what Micah just said is making me think about that concept. And I think the goal, certainly the aspiration of a report like this would be to open the door to allow for black men and boys to exist along that continuum where they are. Am I right in that? And what is the gender continuum? There are two of them, actually. One is the one that you described, which is about people's gender displays falling along a spectrum uh, anchored by you know, super hyper-masculine at one end and super feminine at the other. And then there's also one out there which describes programs and talks about programs which go from being gender-blind, which is what most of the programs we have that serve young people in educational settings are right now, to being gender-neutral, ones that, you know, they kind of engage gender norms. They don't really take a stand one way or another, but at least they acknowledge that masculine and feminine are part of, of an intersectional approach. And you finally get the gender-transformative ones, which actually try to challenge and highlight and hold up rigid gender binaries. So um, part of what's helpful in thinking about these different concepts around, you know, the gender continuum is it helps us analyze not only the kids, but also the situations that they're in. And that reminds me, I wanted to circle back to something that I think you and Micah both indicated. You know, we keep talking about the kids, but we need to make sure we don't let the system off the hook as well. These are systemic problems that come from the top down, not from the kids up. And that many of the people who are working with these kids, boys and girls, have their own, have gone to similar training around gender norms. You know, school safety officers, you know, are taught dominance and enforcing submission and never backing down and responding to disrespectful force. Those are all important parts of hegemonic masculinity. And we need to make sure that we look not only at the kids, but also at the system and not let the system off the hook. And I think someone who's done this extremely well and is one of my heroes, certainly, is Kimberly Crenshaw with, you know, Black Girls Matter, pushed out, over-policed, and underprotected, you know, points out how young men may be policed for and punished for being too masculine, quote-unquote, that young women are being pushed out and, and over-policed for not being feminine enough. So, Ricky and Micah, what can we do to fix it? What do you recommend, especially for the the systems, how to bring about systemic change, and as you're thinking about various systems, including education and schools, what can we do to be more inclusive and transformative? I think one is that we promote sort of the recognition that gender transformative work is sort of best practice and that you can't really be as effective as you could be with young people unless you're doing the work around gender, right? And so I think one thing that we're pushing for is that this isn't like a pet project that is 
just valuable to a certain set of kids that are gender nonconforming or isn't just valuable to, to you know, quote unquote, just the folks in the LGBTQ community, right? Gender work is all of our work and it's work that's important to all of us, right? And so the same way that we can't, as a society, be a society that where everyone fully participates in a society unless we do some work around our history, around race, we need to do the same work around our gender norms and our sort of the way we place folks in those boxes. I think that's the sort of the first step for the underlying value. I think along with that, though, is really there are some very simple things that we can do in the way that we train our educators, where we train our coaches, where we train folks to help them be aware of and sort of remove the blinders around the way they approach gender. And, and one is to just give folks some basic training around ideas of gender norms, give them some basic training about sort of the gender continuum and the gender spectrum, but also give them some really clear information and data uh, that we have in the support around the fact that these sort of hyper-masculine codes and hyper-feminine codes that we're imposing on boys that, you know, that this is what a real man is or on girls this is what a lady does, right? These things actually produce negative life outcomes and that we need to stop sort of promoting and enforcing those really gender norms like right now. You know, one of the things that our community partners have been doing really well is to tell stories. They tell their stories and that really is what at the heart, ultimately changes systems is when we can hear the stories, the anecdotes of young people who experience the things that we talk about systemically. So I wonder if you would just both share your story. What is your story and why is this work important to you? Oh, wow. Uh, I can think of that on so many different levels. First of all, going through uh, school as an LGBTQ person myself, also being one of the only kids of white kids of privilege in uh, elementary school that was, and then in middle school that was predominantly black, and seeing the different ways in which we were treated. Uh, also, now being the parent of a 10 year old girl who's now starting to come under some of the same pressures around gender norms. All of those make me feel that this is really a, a crucial and pressing issue. You know, as Micah kind of indicated, you can't see some of the things, issues that are being undertaken by organizations like Black Lives Matter and not think that gender is an integral, it's unspoken part of both the problem and the solution. And I go back to what you said at the very beginning, Allison, is that you knew all these problems, but in reading the report, you realized that the term you were missing was gender norms. Yeah. And I think that's part of what happens. It's something that we're so close to and we're so used to that we stop seeing it. It's right in front of us. And we sometimes call this a revolution of the obvious. And the goal of the report, I think, for me was Yes, we need model policies and we need model programs, but for kids and educators and school safety officers, but first we need to start having not one conversation, but many that brings this back into focus so we can start dealing with it. I often say to parents, if you don't want to, and educators, if you don't want to talk with your kids about gender norms because you're not comfortable, that's fine. Because, you know, YouTube and MTV and, and Facebook are all having a continuous conversation with your kids about gender expectations. The yeah. question isn't, is someone going to be talking to our kids about it? The question is, are we going to have a voice in that conversation? And this report hopefully moves us a little forward to having that voice in that conversation. It's so critical. Micah, what is your story? Who are you? I grew up as somebody who, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, boyhood or manhood or like those, I'd say like it was a coat that like that I put on that fit me pretty well. Like I was somebody who was able to sort of fit into sort of the man box pretty well. I was a high school football player and loved to like be loud and run and do things outside, you know, and do that stuff growing up. And so a lot of the gender expectations that society put on me, I was able to meet. But even as sort of a gender conforming 
young man, I, I remember just the, the fragility of that, right? That, you know, somebody calling you a mean name or, or, you know, questioning either that you were feminine or that you were gay or that you were anything else, like, was something that was, like, foundationally sort of um, sort of unsettling to who you were as a person. I also saw, you know, as somebody who has, like, you know, gender privilege, right, and is, you know, presents as a young man, I saw my friends that were queer, my friends that sort of were non-binary in terms of their gender expression be treated with hostility, um, open hostility by their classmates and also by the school, by the administration. And so, and I also grew up with a dad who I, I always used to say my dad was in, was in ministry and, and he was like, every sermon he gave, he'd, he'd wind up crying someone in the sermon, right? And he was a, a man who was, did a lot of the gender expectations of what a man was, but also I saw by example, even if it's not always by word, that being a man was also being caring and being in touch with your emotions and being present in that way. And so I always wrote with that as a value. And it really wasn't until I got exposed to some of the language around this issue. And, and, and as a graduate student started looking at the different theories of, of masculinity and of gender that I really was like, here's the language to describe what I've been feeling and experiencing all this time that even as someone who, you know, identifies as a man, that this box of, that tells me how I'm supposed to behave is a prison, right? And that I need to, to help, you know, do some work myself and also work with other folks to help both um, gender conforming and, you know, or, you know, quote unquote, cisgender young people, but also help young people that are gay or, or transgender or identify as non-binary get access to sort of support and help and have at least have adults in their lives that are not punishing them or disciplining them or trying to put them in a box. This has been a wonderful conversation. The The report is powerful. It is enlightening. I think it's very, very important and timely. Um, it really does give structure and vocabulary for many of the things that advocates and activists around the country have been fighting for and against for many years. You know, it's an entry point for bringing together conversations about boys and men of color and women and girls of color for really understanding racial equity and and justice. You know, much of what we're seeing today when we talk about the criminal justice system and juvenile justice system and the impacts on communities of color, this is really a very revealing look. As you said, Micah, this is an American problem and uh, an American issue, and it's something that we have to be willing to talk about, to have brave conversations about in order to move forward. So I'm, I'm appreciative of your work. Dr. Micah Gilmer is a senior partner with Frontline Solutions. Ricky Wilchins is the executive director of True Child. Thank you both so very much for being on the show today. Will you let people know how to find you, Micah, online or elsewhere? How can people reach you? Yeah, you can find access to this report and other materials from us at our website, frontlinesol.com. So short for Frontline Solutions, frontlinesol.com. And Ricky? We actually created an online clearinghouse of some key studies around gender norms and youth of color. And that online clearinghouse, this report, and also the white paper you mentioned for Heinz around black girls and feminine norms is available at truechild.org, stroke Heinz, S-E-I-N-Z, like the ketchup. Thank you both so much again for being on Schoolhouse today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.